Well, good morning and welcome to Providence Road one more time. Uh, my name is Jay and I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest with us, I'm so excited that you've joined us this morning. Uh, a few moments before the service this morning, it felt a little bit like a Left Behind movie. Uh, it is spring break. Uh, people are traveling, but in some ways, some of us actually have been left behind. I want to remember our Czech Republic team um, who are on a mission trip right now uh, in Schumperk, uh, Czech Republic. They, they would have had a service this morning, maybe eight hours ago, and they're gathering together in a home right now with other believers from the Czech Republic. So please continue to pray for them as often as you think about them. Um, it would be good to do so, but we've, we've had encouraging reports so far, so they're doing good work, so be praying for them. This morning, we're going to jump back into the book of John. We've been out of John for about eight weeks now, and we find ourselves at a magnificent shift uh, in the book as Jesus begins to move towards the cross. Pastor Kent Hughes helps us in this transition as he writes, The ministry of the upper room is over. The Passover table bears the cold remains of the Paschal meal. Judas is gone. The intercessory prayer has ended. With the echoes of the last hymn still floating in the midnight air, Jesus and his disciples have headed for Gethsemane and the cross. The details of these final moments are recorded in John 18 and 19. The imminent events are of ultimate importance because none of the wonderful things Jesus has promised uh, during his ministry would be possible without them. The promise of eternal life, the sending of the Holy Spirit as helper, Jesus' return for his beloved, the preparation of a place for them, treasures of grace and salvation, all were dependent upon the manner of Christ's death and resurrection. How he would conduct himself in light, uh, in life, especially in these last few hours, would either validate or invalidate his claims. This is where we're going to move towards this morning and especially over the next few weeks as well. And again, it's been about two months since we've been in John, so it's not fair for me to assume that you're walking in remembering everything that we have uh, discussed so far in John. So I want to refresh a little bit and catch us all up to speed. Maybe you're a guest and you haven't heard any of this, so I want to catch us up to where we are. John's purpose in writing this book is found in chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book of John, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's goal is that we, for all who would read this book, would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God, and we'd find life in his name. Now we mentioned this next detail back in August, which was several months ago, but in chapter 12, through verse 20, through chapter 20, about two weeks of Jesus' life cover those nine chapters. So the first 11 chapters take two to three years, and from chapter 12 to 20, it's about two weeks. So time slows way, way, way down, okay? That's very helpful for us to think on. So what's happened in these last couple weeks in the book of John? I'm just going to highlight a few of those things. A couple weeks ago, Jesus healed Lazarus. And because he was a walking billboard to the power of God, people were going away and believing in Jesus because just that he's walking around. The religious leaders then wanted to kill Lazarus just like they wanted to kill Jesus. We see Jesus start to be conflicted about what's ahead for him. His soul begins to be, become troubled, but he's nevertheless intent to do that which the Father has sent him to do. Just a few weeks ago, he washed his disciples' feet, modeling for them what true servant leadership looks like. In John, we see a lot of Jesus' teachings 
over these chapters, big claims and promises like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is there anything I can do about that? Do I need to tighten up? Do you hear that? We're good? There, I wasn't all the way tight. Sorry about that. Uh, how, we, we see in chapter 15 how union with Christ and abiding in him is the only source of true life. The promise of the Holy Spirit's coming and the need for Jesus to leave in order for that to happen. And the tension and division that we feel as followers of Jesus with the world. The very last thing we see in chapter 17, right before we get to where we are today, he prays over those who follow him. And not just those in his presence, but us today. All who would believe in their, what they say. We, we read in verse uh, 20 of chapter 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So right before we get to his arrest and betrayal and soon-to-be crucifixion, he is praying for us. He prays for us. He prays for all of the unknown number of people who will follow Jesus right before he heads to the cross. How humbling is that? That he prays for our perseverance, our unity, protection from the Father, our fullness of joy, that we'd be sanctified. He's praying these things for us right before we get to where we are this morning. Now, much more has happened, but I just wanted to refresh our memory with some of those things that have happened. Now, let's move to chapter 18. So this is in narrative form. I want to highlight a few things. We'll notice then a couple themes that we see throughout chapter 18, and then we'll ask, well, what, what does this mean for us this morning? We begin in verse 1 when John says, when Jesus had spoken these words, I believe to both remind us of the teachings from chapters 14 through 17, some of which I've just mentioned, but also to the immediacy with which he's now moving in a new direction. He's changing a direction. He's now heading to a place that he and his disciples have frequented. We, we know that from verse 2 here, but also from Luke 21, 37 and Luke twenty two thirty nine, that Jesus spent a lot of time here in this garden in his last days on earth. He would go into the city and he would do some ministry and he would go back to the garden. He would go into the city and do some ministry and he would go back to the garden. And Judas knew that. John makes sure that we know Judas knew that. In part, I believe, to show us that Jesus went with his disciples back to the garden this specific time, knowing that it would be his last. This wasn't just a hop, skip, and a jump from the city. They would cross the Kidron Valley, and the, and the lowest part of the Kidron Valley is about 200 feet below the base of the temple. So they would go down in this valley, and they would come back up just briefly, about a three-quarter mile hike, about up this hillside or, or small mountaintop. And as they would do that, uh, they would cross this valley. Um, well, I'll get to that in just a moment. But Jesus seemed to like this for its seclusion, offering him solitude and a place of rest. And again, this time he went for a different purpose. What was that purpose? To be found. To be found by the one that would betray him. How do we know that from verse 4? Jesus knew all that would happen to him. He knew what was coming, and he went to the garden this time knowing that his betrayer would find him there. So let's get to Judas. Judas doesn't come alone, does he? He creates this kind of odd partnership that had a common mission. Roman soldiers, religious officers, and Judas himself. 
And they come bearing arms. They had lanterns, torches, and weapons. Commentator Don Carson acknowledges the elephant in the garden here when he says, common foes generate strange friendships. He also notes that this collection of people indicts the whole world. You have the big, powerful nation. You have the religious leaders and the guard dogs. And you even have a friend of Jesus. All are guilty. Now, it would be easy for us to stand outside and condemn them, right, and say, Man, look at these people. How could they betray the Son of God? But we do these very same things, don't we? What was the motivation for each group of people? For the Romans, it was political. We also can be swayed into thinking that this political faction or that one are truly what the world needs. So we ever so slightly become entrenched by what this party thinks or what that party thinks, forgetting that the kingdom of God is not bound by a man-made party. What about the religious leaders? It was spiritual. We can be tempted to believe that our line of thinking is the best. Our tribe is the best. Our theology is the best. The way we practice things is the best. And in the process, we trample others made in the image of God, promoting our elitism. This is not the way of Jesus. And what about Judas? Well, for him, it was financial. Judas sold out the Son of God for a quick buck. And we, like Judas, we can let money drive all of our decisions, can't we? We compare ourselves to others. We desire more and more things. We want things that we don't currently have so we can be tempted to work longer hours, buy bigger houses, buy nicer cars, and keep up with the Joneses. We can be tempted to not be generous towards others or save unnecessary amounts towards retirement because we fear we don't have enough. Money can drive all of our decisions just like it did for Judas. So may we be slow to condemn those who sought to get rid of Jesus. Are you tempted in one way or another, uh, in one of these ways, either political, spiritual, or financial, to partner with the world to gain things that do not satisfy? Now, it's hard to pinpoint the exact number that were in this Roman army. I read some that believed it was a full 600 men that came in this band of soldiers. Others believe it was a smaller number, like 200 some even less than that. What we can be certain of is that it was an overabundance of men coming to capture Jesus. Matthew, in his gospel, describes this group as, quote, a great crowd that came with Judas, and that's Matthew 26, 47. So it's tough to say exactly what brought a group that seems to be so large and why they felt the need to bring weapons as they did. Perhaps on the one hand, they didn't trust Judas. And and who would trust Judas? Would you trust Judas? I wouldn't let him watch my kids. I mean, you, you wouldn't you leave him near your wallet, right? If he can betray his friend, that whom he followed, they could be thinking, well, he can betray us just like he betrayed this one that he's betrayed to us. Would you, Jesus even be there? They might be thinking. Would he be hiding in one of the crevices of the mountain? Would there be an ambush there? Would Jesus be on this mountain at all? It could be that they had so many men because they did not trust Judas. The other thought, and maybe the more predominant one, is that they feared a revolt on behalf of such a prominent figure. Jesus was gaining a following. And so how would the public respond if they were to capture him? Would there be an uprising? Given that so many people were drawn to the city during Passover, they didn't want to take any chances. Now, regardless of where you might land and where you might think that they were thinking... 
I'm not sure that getting this detail right is the point. I think the point is that they were determined to find him this night. They were determined. Whatever it took, by force or otherwise, they didn't want to come back empty-handed. These strange friends had a common foe that they all wanted to get rid of. What they found was surprising. Yes, Jesus was exactly where Judas expected him to be, but more than that, he doesn't run. In fact, he approaches them. He moves towards them. And this is where I'd like to call our attention to the first theme that John is pointing to us towards. He's intentionally showing us this, and that is this, that Jesus is in full control of the events that are taking place. He's in full control. How have we already seen this? Well, again, he intentionally went to the garden, a familiar place, though it is hidden, it was familiar, knowing that he'd be found there. The Synoptic Gospels confirm this by building out the agony he feels in those final moments. Why would he be so, you know, praying blood, you know, getting his disciples to pray, waking them up, saying, the time is coming? Why would he feel that if he didn't know what was coming? He knew. He knew. He was in control of these moments. Verse 4 gives it even more clearly to us when he says, knowing all that would happen to him. Jesus moves towards them knowing what would happen. He doesn't run because he's in control of this moment. How do we see this in further detail? Jesus asked who they seek, and they reply, and he, uh, they reply, Jesus of Nazareth, and then he says, I am he. Now, why would that cause them to fall to the ground? That seems a bit odd, doesn't it? That would never happen with any normal man. If you walk in this room today, and let's say that you're looking for me, you're, you're looking for Jay Frymeyer, and then you find me, and I say, oh, I am he. What might people think if you fall to the ground in that moment? That would, yeah, you're laughing. That is silly. That is very, very silly. But what is Jesus doing here? He's not just saying, I'm, I'm the person you're looking for. He's saying something much greater than that. He's claiming deity, just as he did in John 8 when he said, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what was their response in John 8? Did they give him a hug and say, oh, you're the guy? They picked up stones to stone him. They wanted to kill him because they knew he was claiming deity. The reason they picked up stones to throw at him in John 8 is the same reason they fell back in John 18. Because Jesus is claiming to be God because he is, and he's in full control of the events that are transpiring. The exchange happens again, and he confirms again, I am he, I am, I'm the one. I am Jesus of Nazareth, in part to set his disciples free. He wants to fulfill the scriptures that he would not lose any of his disciples save for Judas, the son of destruction. We also see Jesus' sovereignty on display in his rebuke of Peter. Now, it's somewhat comical what Peter does here, right? What does he think he's going to do against this army that has presented itself? It's truly another David versus Goliath moment. Either God wants to win this battle for him, and he will do it, or God does not want this battle to be won, and it won't be. So Peter pulls out his sword, and he lops off this poor guy's ear. And then he gets rebuked, and Jesus reminds him, again, that he's not after the things of God. Jesus is prepared to drink the wrath of God, the cup, on behalf of those he loves. Now, throughout his capture, we're going to see moments of 
unfairness towards Jesus. He doesn't receive a fair and honest trial. The ulterior motives of those who oppose him win out. And they do whatever it takes to capture and crucify him. That begins here in our text. They take, they take him and bring him before the high priest, but he's not really the high priest. It's somewhat confusing here. They take him to Annas, but it's clear multiple times we see that Caiaphas is the high priest. So why are they bringing him to Annas? See, he, he had been the high priest in years prior, and he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. So it's easy to see the connection between the functioning high priest and the actual high priest. But I wonder if this was planned in advance. It was custom that when someone was arrested, witnesses for the arrested would be heard before witnesses against him. But they, they bring Jesus directly to the high priest, and they ask Jesus to respond for himself. So when he responds to the high priest, and they don't like his response, right? He gets struck. But when he responds, he's simply asking for a fair trial. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I said. They know what I said. He's saying, essentially, there's no conspiracy. I've, I've lived in public. I've preached in public. I'm not hiding anything. There is no conspiracy. Find out the witnesses and ask them. It's possible that Annas is able to skirt the rules here because he isn't technically the high priest, right? But it's also possible that none of them cared. If we remember, Caiaphas is the one that predicted that Jesus would, would, would die this year. John 11, verse 47 says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees, this is right after Jesus healed Lazarus. They're freaking out. They don't know what's happening here or how, how big Jesus is going to get. And so they gathered a council and they said, What are we to do? For if this man keeps doing this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they're, they're worried about power, losing power. But Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now we must note here that Caiaphas, when he suggested that Jesus die for the people, he was merely considering that Jesus be a scapegoat for them. If there's turmoil, how about we not all die? Let's just put someone in our place so the Romans will be appeased. That's what Caiaphas was thinking. Or whoever might be mad, the Sanhedrin or whoever, Caiaphas is only thinking politically. John makes sure that we see the double meaning, though, and we can look back on this and see substitutionary atonement. So they've already shown they're not seeking fairness in the trial. They're not above foul play to bring about their intended outcome. And while being slapped on the cheek, Jesus is not violating his previous command to turn the other cheek, nor is he apologizing for someone else's hurt feelings when he has no need to apologize. He's done nothing wrong. He's simply bearing witness to the truth. And yet, all of, in all of this, despite all of these things, Jesus is in full control and sovereign over all these events. Remember what Paul has shared with us about Jesus in the book of Colossians in chapter 1. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, this man who is bound in chains before the high priest, this man, by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things are created through him and for him. He's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, again, this man bound by this Roman army, 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In this man. Let us not think that he has lost control in this moment. He is in full control of these things. And this, this is Jesus, the one that has been captured in John 18. Now, this is especially good news for us during times in our life when we feel like things have gone out of control, right? When the wheels of our life, it just feels like all the wheels have fallen off. What, might, what must have the disciples been thinking in this moment? We know what Peter's fight or flight instinct is when he pulled out his sword and chopped off this guy's ear. We know that he wants to fight. Where's everyone else? Where are they? We don't know exactly, but they're scattered somewhere. They're afraid of what's going down. They will soon understand. We know that from the chapters that follow and the rest of the New Testament, but here and now, that's unhelpful. They don't know. They don't know the end of the story. So they're full of fear and anxiety and doubt and loneliness. And in these moments, God is still in control, even in these moments. So what has changed? We have, our circumstances have, or our feelings have. God has not changed. So in your greatest moments of fear and anxiety or doubt or loneliness, remember, God has not changed. Your circumstances have, and certainly your feelings have changed. We change. God has not changed. And while you may still have questions for him, oh, how we wish in those darkest moments we knew the full story, right? We wish we knew everything that was going to happen and how it was going to happen, but we take another step forward by faith, knowing that God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over creation. He's sovereign over Jesus' arrest and betrayal. And he's sovereign over even the most difficult moments of your life. He is in control. The second theme that we see unfolding that John wants us to see is from verse 11. Jesus is our substitute, taking on sin in our place. The illusions are everywhere for us to see. Let's begin in the garden. Is there a greater significance to Jesus being in the garden of Gethsemane than just being in a place that he frequented? Again, Pastor Kent Hughes is going to argue that, yes, there is something greater going on here. And that John's mention of a garden in verse 1 is meant to take us all the way back to another garden in Eden, where our first father, Adam, has failed us. Hughes unpacks the symbolism for us. This is beautiful. In, in the first Adam, uh, the first Adam began life in a garden. Christ, the second Adam, came at the end of his life to a garden. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Savior overcame sin. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, Jesus conquered. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, our Lord boldly presented himself. In Eden, the sword was drawn. In Gethsemane, he had Peter put his sword away. And when he crossed the brook Kidron, Hughes makes note of the drain that was connected to the temple altar when some 200,000 plus lambs were slain at this time of year. So the blood from their sacrifices flowed through that valley. So when Jesus, this is a quote from, from Hughes, so when Jesus and his band crossed the Kidron, it was red with the blood of sacrifice. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? So when we understand the context, we ought to see light bulbs going off everywhere. For those of us who know the full story, Jesus is about to become our substitute. God is about to make him who knew no sin, sin for us that we would become the righteousness of God. This is beautiful. Jesus makes it even more clear for us 
when he references the cup in verse 11, which is the cup of God's wrath mentioned throughout the scriptures. We see that from Isaiah 51, verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Psalm 75. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there's a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And then in Jeremiah 25, God lists cities to send Jeremiah to with this message. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and become crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. These verses speak of what Jesus is implying. This is the full cup of God's wrath. It is filled and overflowing, and it must be drained down to the dregs, to those last few dots that you see in the bottom of a cup. It must be entirely consumed. And this is what Jesus talks about in verse 11 when he says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now this cup, the cup of God's wrath, is what's headed for us if not for Jesus. We, we are deserving of this cup. We have earned this cup. And you may say, well, I'm generally a good person. What do, you, what do you mean that I deserve this cup? What do the scriptures say? Psalm 52. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Why have they fallen short? Leviticus 19. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is the standard. We're all deserving of God's wrath. Because this is the standard. Sure, it's not the standard if you compare yourself to one another, if you compare yourself to me. My kids do this all the time. Well, well, I, I shouldn't be in trouble for this or that because look at what he did or look at what she did. My kid's smiling at me up here. Yeah, you, you do that. But we, all, we do that too. I'm not so bad because look at him or look at her. But this is the standard. Holiness, blamelessness perfection, righteousness. So what have we earned? Romans 6, 23, the wages of our sin is death. These are our wages. Those of you in the room who work, you have a job that gives you a paycheck, you would be pretty upset if you walked into work this week and you were deserving of a paycheck and they did not have the paycheck for you. What would you say? You would say, give me what I've earned. I've worked for these wages, give me what I've earned. We don't do that with God's wrath, right? But this is what we've earned, the wrath of God, until Christ becomes our substitute. And praise God that he was both in full control and intently set on drinking the full wrath of God, the full cup, overflowing down to the dregs, the full cup of God's wrath that was meant for us. Praise God. Tim Keller has said that Jesus has become the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. 
Romans 5. We looked at this last week on Baptism Sunday. Therefore, as one trespass by Adam led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness by Jesus leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus is in full control of all the events that are transpiring. He becomes our substitute, and he drinks the full wrath, the full cup of God's wrath in our place. Now, there are times in life where we're tipped off to a tragedy that's about to happen, right? These moments can vary in both the length of time that we're given and also the magnitude that they will impact us, but this does happen. This could be an impending work meeting where you know something bad's about to go down. Like maybe you know that someone else is about to be fired. Maybe that you know you're about to be reprimanded or something bad's about to happen. And this is building up for you. Like maybe you know days in advance and you're worried about it, but then there comes a moment where you actually have to walk through those doors into that meeting room and the meeting takes place. Maybe it's news of an impending war that's about to happen, but the first bullet or bomb has not gone off yet. But you know it's about to happen. Brooke and I felt this reality when we lost our son in, in 2018. Many of you walked with us during this time that we found out four or five months into pregnancy that our son would not live past birth. And those moments leading up to his birth were the, were the hardest by far. And as we got closer to that event, the weight felt heavier and heavier, the pain and the sadness, and yet we, we could not dodge this moment. We could not avoid it. There was, there was this tragedy that was coming. We could not get around it. And at some point, we had to get up that, that morning. We had to get up, pack our bags, and walk into that hospital room knowing what was coming. Now, the reason I can stand here before you this morning with any semblance of hope or encouragement is that this is what Jesus experienced in John 18. This is it. Only his length of notice was significantly longer and the magnitude infinitely greater. Here in the garden, the wheels are being set in motion, and Jesus begins to move towards the cross. He's taking that step. But this was God's plan for the, from the very beginning. He was not caught off guard by our sin. He knew broken people would need a redeemer, and he provided one from the very beginning. Hundreds of years prior to this, we see in Isaiah, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Jesus came into the world knowing that once he did, that countdown timer had begun. It was approaching, and the pain he felt was greater than anything you or I feel, in part because he had never sinned. He didn't deserve any of this. But also because of what we read in Matthew 15, 34, when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father turned his face away from God the Son as Jesus consumed the full wrath of the cup the Father had given him. And he drank it all down to those last few drops. And he did it so we wouldn't have to. Now, I know this has been a heavier morning than maybe we're accustomed to. Last week, we're, you know, charismatic church, singing about people coming to life, finding life in Jesus, and it was a great morning. But I want us to feel the weight of what's happening in our text. We're currently four weeks from Easter Sunday, and we're quickly moving towards the resurrection. And the most appropriate celebration of all time, 
That's coming. But would you not move there too quickly? As we shift in our calendar here at Prov Road to the preparation towards that Easter Sunday, I want you to reflect on some things. First, what has your sin cost? Think about what your sin has cost. What has it cost you? What has it cost those around you? What has it cost Jesus? I want to ask also, are you afraid to feel pain? In these moments we talk about tragedy coming, are you afraid to feel what's ahead of you? Are you afraid to go there? And why? I also want us to think on what is stirring up in you when you consider the weight of your sin and what we deserve coupled with Jesus' resolve to move towards arrest and crucifixion on your behalf. Now, I get it. There are so many things that can distract us from pondering these things. You've got responsibilities at work and at home. You get busy with tasks in the grocery store and kids and all this stuff. Your kids have events and you've got homework to help them with. I get it. Maybe you're just tired. I mean, spring forward. Come on right now. Maybe you're just tired. Maybe life is weighing down on you. Maybe you're also afraid to go there, that your heart, you've built up walls around your heart. We skirt around deep relationships because we're afraid of what we might find, but we're also afraid of what someone else might find within us. I believe over these next few weeks, there's no more meaningful work than we can do these very things. In the same way that we prepare our hearts for Advent, we take four weeks before the coming birth of Jesus and we reflect what that means for us. I'm asking you to do the same. I'm inviting you into four weeks of reflecting on these very things. Now again, it's heavy, it's weighty, but let's lean into these things and trust that when Easter comes, we'll celebrate big and it'll be great. Having a better grasp on what it costs our Savior to offer us new life in his name. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful this morning for Jesus. We're reminded again of the heaviness of our sin. Help us both collectively but also individually to say in this room, man, we have wronged you. We have fallen short of the standards set before us. And yet you know that. You're not surprised by that. That's why you sent your son Jesus. So help us to reflect on that, but also help us to remember that Jesus has paid our debt. And for those of us in Christ, we owe you nothing more because of what Jesus has done for us. We don't have to do good things to make you love us. You love us because of Jesus' work for us and his imputed righteousness to us. Praise be to God. Help us to lean into that. Help us to confess big, but also help us to be assured of this new life that we have in Jesus. God, we love you, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.